Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Ian Manuel. He is a motivational speaker at schools and social organizations nationwide. His book is called My Time Will Come, a memoir of crime, punishment, hope, and redemption, which is published by our friends at Pantheon Books. Ian, thank you for joining me. No problem. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here, Ian. And first, uh, let me say, Ian, that I am really so happy to have you here. I'm happy that you've survived and that you were here alive uh, talking to me. Um, this is an amazing book. Let's dive right in. The foreword to your book is written by Brian Stevenson, lawyer, uh, author of Just Mercy. You are featured in Just Mercy. Ian, what does Brian mean to you and what does it mean for you that he has written the introduction to your book? Uh, I look at Brian uh, Stevenson as my personal savior, <laughs> not not in a God sense, but just someone that, that swooped in and saved my life, man. If it wasn't for Brian, I would have died in prison. Uh, so for him to uh, reach out to me and uh, when I was in prison, serving life in prison to take my case for free, pro bono, um, it was just something that, uh, uh, that it was like man up from heaven for me. And also um, for him to put me in just mercy, uh, for him to continue to be a supporter, uh, uh, the strongest supporter of mine, it's, it's, it's like an uh, angel, man, that God sent me from heaven. I'm, and I'm, I'm so glad that he uh, willingly provided his uh, great foreword for my book. Excellent. Thank you, Ian. Um, so let's talk about the circumstances of your story in this book. When you are... 13 years old, um, you commit a crime, you shoot uh, Debbie Bajry non-fatally, and then a couple of days later, you steal a car. Uh, I don't want to dwell on this moment too long because I know that you've spent enough time dwelling on it already, uh, or perhaps not. I will let you tell us, but what happened in this stretch of days when you were 13 years old? Why did you shoot Debbie not once, but twice? Uh, no, I didn't shoot Debbie twice. Uh, I only shot her once. Um, hmm. uh, I mean, the gun was fired more than once, but Debbie was yeah. only hit, was shot one time. Um, hmm. So I want to correct that. But um, uh, I, it's, it's, it was pure pressure. Uh, you know, uh, being with a group, of, a group of kids and all older than me trying to impress the crowd, uh, also, you know, the environment I grew up in, uh, even though I wasn't raised like that per se by my mother and my grandmother to commit violent acts of violence, uh, when I get separated from my upbringing, uh, how I was raised to actually being around in influential kids uh, in the neighborhood, it had an effect on me. It was just the same thing going on with kids today, you know? Mm, I do, absolutely. And you and I are about the same age, Ian, and I spent a lot of time after I read your book imagining what my life would be like if I were constantly being judged for something I did when I was 13 years old. Um, I was an idiot when I was 13 years old. Most kids are, I think. Uh, 13 seems not only like a lifetime ago, but several lifetimes ago. Sitting here today in 2021 with the life that you have lived what would you have done if you 
were the judge in your case and a 13 year old kid was standing before you awaiting a sentence for a case identical to yours? Well, there's uh, that's a great, great question. Uh, and thank you for asking it. You know, the judge had options, uh, several options before him. Uh, at the time, it, it was a law in Florida uh, that required the judge to give written reasons for, uh, it's called suitability for adult sanctions. And if the judge would have found that adult sanctions were not required in my case, he could have imposed juvenile sanctions, which would have placed me in a, a, a real, real rehabilitative uh, juvenile program until the time I was like 18. Uh, I did need to be punished for my actions. I'm not saying I need to go be unpunished, but the, the extraordinary lengths that the court took uh, to basically uh, eradicate me from society is something that I couldn't see myself doing to any human being, let alone a child, especially one that hadn't killed anybody. So a life wasn't lost. Uh, so why was my life taken? And you know that goes back to Brian. Had Brian not found me and you know took my case to the U.S. Supreme Court, I would have still been in prison and I would have died in prison. So I would have given a child a, a second chance at life. I would have. I would have agreed that his acts were serious enough to warrant punishment, uh, but I would have not eradic tried to eradicate this kid from society. Right. Thank you, Ian. And um, along these same lines, you alluded to some of this a little bit earlier. The environment you grew up in, uh, your mother and father were not really around. You were sexually abused by your brother. Uh, mm -hmm. I want to talk about the evolution of these relationships later, but for now, uh, considering where um, you were as a 13-year-old, how do you feel in retrospect that you were shaped by your environment? And what do you think the state of Florida and perhaps the educational system and the penal system could change um, in their approach to ensure that kids who grew up in a situation similar to yours are given a chance? Well, one thing they need to do uh, is change this law. It's a law that's still on the books. Uh, when I was incarcerated that gives prosecutors the luxury of sending a child of any age that's indicted for a life or death felony uh, shall be treated in every respect as if he were an adult. Uh, that law needs to be changed uh, because the, the way the law is written, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old, uh, a, a child of any age can be sent to adult prison based on the type of crime he's charged with. Uh, so Florida is really uh, draconian in that way. Uh, they haven't evolved. And uh, you would think that in 2021, we would be living in a, uh, a day and age where a child of uh, as young as six could be could not be sent to potentially to adult prison. So that's one thing. Thank you so much, Ian. Um, you do go to great pains in your book, it seems, to illustrate that there were figures at this juncture of your life as a young man, as a 13-year-old, who were attempting to exert a positive influence on you, uh, your grandmother and the gentleman who was a director at the YMCA, for example. Uh, did you recognize what these folks were trying to do for you at the time uh, when you were younger, or is this recognition something that has come uh, with age and maturity? 
Yeah, it, it came with uh, with recollection as I as I was uh, you know older and looking back on my life at the time. I don't quite think I fully got uh, what my grandmother and my and the guy that you're talking about, Bob Gilbertson, the president and CEO of the YMCA's. Uh, at the time in Tampa and went on to, see, to be the president and CEO of YMCA's in Seattle, uh, were doing. Uh, I, I didn't recognize how special they saw me, that they saw something in me that they wanted to nurture, uh, to try to uh, preserve, uh, because it was uh, different than what they would expect someone growing up in my uh, neighborhood to uh, exhibit, you know? So uh, I, it was only as I grew older and I mostly when I was in solitary confinement reflecting on my life that I would, was able to grasp that, hey man, these people saw something in you and they really were trying to be uh, nurturers in your life. Excellent. Thank you so much, Ian. Uh, earlier, I mentioned your mother, your father, and your brother. Um, from my viewpoint as a reader, all three of these people did uh, irreparable harm to you as a kid, which you detail in this book, but you forge a relationship with each of them later in life and forgive each of them in turn, it seems. Um, I'm wondering, did Debbie's support and forgiveness of you inspire you to pay this forgiveness forward towards others? Uh, it definitely had an impact on me, um, but I, I just think uh, naturally in my heart, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a, more of a uh, time heals all things type person, and uh, and I just recognize that they must have been the same way I would have wanted the judge to recognize that I had to be struggling with something uh, to be doing what I was doing at a young age that they themselves must have been wrestling with their own demons, uh, to inflict the type of, uh, uh, reprehensible, uh, harm that they were, uh, inflicting on me as a, as a young child. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Ian. Listeners, we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Ian Manuel. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin', B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Ian Manuel, author of My Time Will Come, which is published by our friends at Pantheon Books. Ian, your story is interspersed with poems. You obviously have a passion for poetry, and that passion is something that seems to have touched many people along your journey, uh, your lawyer, your editors, your prison mates. When did you discover your passion for poetry, and how did you begin to explore it? Oh man, that's a great, great question. Um, 
I, I, it was in 1992, I think I was about 14 or 15 years old and I was in confinement. No, I was in open, I was in open population before I was placed in confinement. And, uh, uh, I heard a poem about, uh, it was a love poem. Um, and the name of the poem was called, I have a heart. And it was just such a touching poem. It was about this person that, uh, gave up his halo and gave up his wings in heaven and went to hell to be with his, uh, his girlfriend, his lover. Right. And I was thinking, wow, if, if, if this, if this could touch me, uh, just imagine, man, if I could create poetry myself, but I didn't really get into it until later in the later years uh, of my incarceration when I was in solitary confinement and I needed something as an outlet to express the pain that I was experiencing and because, you know, you're taught as a man not to cry. And then in prison, it, that's even doubled down upon, like you are not allowed to show any weakness. And so I would only show that vulnerability in my poetry. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I began to write poetry and sh- got the courage to share it with my fellow prisoners. And uh, to my dismay, they fell in love with it and started paying me, um, uh, money to write to their poems to their girlfriends and their wives. And so uh, I'm like, wow, I got a gift that I can actually uh, get paid off of. And so it just encouraged me to continue. to. But mainly my poetry came about in the latter years of my incarceration as a way, as, as, as a way to provide therapy to myself. Excellent. Thank you, Ian. And along similar lines, when speaking about poets you read and admired in prison, you mention Maya Angelou and Eminem in the same breath. How do Maya Angelou and Eminem compare, and how do these two seemingly disparate voices inspire you? Um, both are lyrical, right? Both are very lyrical. Uh, both are geniuses in their own right. And and at, at the time, I. I used to challenge myself. I like to always say that I set up obstacle style course, Olympic style obstacle courses in my cell. Now, how, how you might think, how in the heck do you do that? Well, writing exercises. I challenge myself, and if you can't rewrite Maya Angelou's uh, uh, poem about uh, uh, one of her most famous poems, then you can't be successful. If you can't rewrite Eminem's Lose Yourself, then you don't have what it takes to make it. And so I would sit down and force myself to rewrite each of those poems. And I did it and I shared it with my prisoners. And anytime you write, a, write something and share it with a prisoner because they're worse than Sandman on Apollo or Simon Cowell on American Idol, because they will critique you and cut you to the quick if you don't got it. Uh, and to get see the positive response that I I got. So that's how they that's how they kind of combine for me because they're different, but they're also one of the best in their their specific areas of, of lyricism. And so I we wrote their poems and and people loved them. Excellent, thank you, Ian. Uh, would you like to recite a poem for us now? Yeah, uh, I have so many poems that I could choose from, but I think I'm going to maybe recite a poem concerning this book, uh, the book title. Uh, uh, it's initially, the poem is called My Time's Gonna Come. And uh, I'm, I'll go into it right now because it's, it's such an inspirational uh, poem. It says, I-, I promise you, the brunt of my oppression has a purpose. 
And this same person that you persecute will one day be worshiped. Though I stand before you bare chested and shirtless with my soul and emotions naked, just wanting to be nurtured. Yeah, despite the desperation, desertion, and hurting, my time gonna come. Though I composed this poem not knowing if I'll ever be able to perform it in an auditorium, I do it with the faith of a poet that believes he was born to do it like an acorn caught up in a storm, flung from the branch where it was born. You can only hold me back for so long. My time gonna come. Despite the difficulties and disappointments, my determination remains undaunted. Though the waters of my tomorrows are deep and uncharted, the buoyance of my character will float unwavering towards them. Like a song written, yet unrecorded, my time gonna come. Though you wrap me in chains and spray me with chemical flames and did all of the things you did to add to my pain, my circumstances will change. I believe this with the depths of my being that as long as this world continues to spin, it cannot end until it's been enjoyed by Ian. Remember this day, because things won't always be this way. My time gonna come. My time gonna come. Against all conceivable odds, my time gonna come. Thank you. Wow, thank you, Ian. That was fantastic. Your poems are so powerful in the page, but hearing you read it out loud, that was... Um, a very powerful and different and magnificent experience. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. No problem. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you've talked a, a little bit about some of this already, but I do want you to tell us about your 20 years of solitary confinement, uh, 20 years spent in a space, the size of a freight elevator uh, where you were treated as an animal and where your only human contact is when these terrible prison officers are beating you or pouring gas on you or abusing you otherwise verbally and mentally what sort of mental gymnastics did you need to do to survive this Ian how did you pass these days weeks months years decades so I I, I thought along and hard on that like how did I survive you never know what you can survive until you have to go through it, right? Um, and one thing I think saved me is by me being placed in solitary at such a young age, I was able to tap into my childlike imagination. You know, children have a wonderful imagination. And, um, and I think it's one of the things that stopped me from losing my mind. Because as I, I think I described in the book, I know I've said in my presentations is that Imagine a fish, in order for a fish to survive underwater, he has to come up for air. Every now and then he has to come up and get that little bit of air and go back down. And so that's what I would do with my imagination. I would dive within the depths of my imagination like a fish, but I would always come back up for that little bit of air of reality, reality, and go back down in my imagination. The person who develops schizophrenia in solitary confinement 
they never came up for that era. The, re, the painful reality that of their existence in, in, in the physical was just too painful for they ever get come back up for the era. So they would stay in their imagination and turn into schizophrenia. So it was just my childlike imagination that helped me survive, man. And my poetry, of course. Yeah, um, thank you. And I think you just answered my next question. I was wondering if you being so young, um, first of all, it's terrible that you were so young and put into solitary confinement, and that should absolutely never happen. Uh, but I wonder if the fact that you were so young was an advantage because your brain was still developing. Yes. Like, I wonder if you were a few years older, if you would have gotten through it. Right. That's, that's, uh, I mean, and I also like to say that I had some measure of what a human could withstand when I looked at Nelson Mandela. I knew Nelson Mandela had spent 18 years in solitary confinement and 27 years in prison. So I knew that the human, a human being could withstand that long. I eventually served uh, 18 consecutive years of solitary and 26 years in prison. So I, I just like was just on the cusp of being Nelson Mandela's uh, record. And but just knowing that another human being had went through what I went through also gave me some sustenance that I could actually survive it as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ian. Um, when I was 13 years old, again, I was probably listening to the debut album from Rage Against the Machine. And I constantly come back more often than I would like to, uh, to Zach De La Roca's lyric from the song, Know Your Enemy, which is what? The land of the free, whoever told you that is your enemy. Uh, and with that in mind, I need to ask you, why is the United States of America the only country that is sentencing children to a lifetime in prison? Oh, I, I, I can't answer that, man. Like the United States, we want to be on the front lines of uh, human rights. Uh, and you would think that we would be on the front line of saving our children. You know, uh, I, I can't explain because I'm not the ones that's making the laws. But I just think we need to take a long, hard look at the American soul and, and see what we can do to actually uh, make amends for the things that we do to our children. You, I mean, children aren't meant to be thrown away. Now, I, I'll be the first to admit that some of these crimes are atrocious and punishment needs to be meted out. But to take a life when no life was taken is not uh, justice, even in uh, the Bible. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's just horrendous. So I can't, it's, I think America has to answer that question for itself. You know, the people that are in power, that have, have the ability to, to make these changes worldwide. Why are kids still being placed in solitary confinement? Why are kids uh, still being sent to prison with astronomical numbers? Like even, even when the U.S. Supreme Court said, okay, we can't send these kids to life in prison anymore, what they're doing now is sentencing kids to 50, 60, 100, 200 years just so that's their go around saying we can't, we can't give them L-I-F-E, but we can sentence them till they die in prison with a term would be a sentence. So uh, uh, that, that needs to be some reckoning with the American soul. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ian. And finally, in your poem, Every Time I Breathe, you write, tomorrow isn't promised, so I'm thankful for this minute. And Ian, I am so thankful and amazed that you have landed here where you have 
My question is, how does someone who has lived your life and been through everything that you have been through land on this perspective that tomorrow isn't promised? So you're thankful for this minute. Oh, that's, that's, uh, that's a great question, man. I think, um, because it's this minute, I, I learned from reading Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now in Solitary Confinement is this minute, this moment is all we have. And if you can focus and truly appreciate the moment that you're in and don't focus on your past, don't focus on the future, but the power in the now, then you will live it fully and you will be, you will get the most out of your life in that moment. And so uh, that's why I try to convey that in that poem uh, every time I breathe, which is one of my top creations, man. So, uh, yeah, that's my answer to that. Excellent. Thank you so much, Ian. And thank you for writing this book, much like your author, Brian Stevenson. I'm proud of you, buddy. And you're truly an amazing person. Uh, You haven't let anyone take that from you. Don't ever let anyone take that from you. I think your story is going to be a revelation to a lot of people. Listeners, I've been speaking with Ian Manuel, author of My Time Will Come, which is published by our friends at Pantheon Books. Ian, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Ian Manuel for joining me. Copies of My Time Will Come can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking.